Hello, my name is Chris White, and welcome to the Boxing 20 Years Ago podcast, where we are going back in the time machine to June of 1997 to bring you coverage of the infamous Tyson Holyfield 2 bout in our second ever edition of the Boxing Podcast. Joining me for this venture, we have our resident boxing expert, Dan Welling. Dan, how are you doing? Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. A bit weeks later, we're supposed to be doing it, but we're here eventually. Yeah, we got there in the end. And of course, we have with us uh, uh, Bob Bamba. Yeah, good evening, Chris. This is a, this is a weird one. This was a, a June show. We're taping this on July 20th, as as, uh, as we do. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think, uh, Chris, you're a bit under the weather. I'm a bit under the weather. But uh, yes, this is a, uh, as, as, as historic moments go in boxing, this is right up there. So it's, uh, it's good to be here to discuss it. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it may not have been convenience, it may have always been your plan, but we picked a pretty good time to get involved with the uh, heavyweight championship in terms of the uh, 20 years ago timeline, really. Um, but yeah, uh, as I said, we are here for the uh, boxing edition of the podcast covering the rematch between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson, a fight billed as The Sound and the Fury uh, between the two men challenging for the uh, WBA heavyweight championship of the world. Uh, of course, you may know this fight. Uh, by its name that it was given after the fact, which is the Bite Fight. Um, So we're just basically going to run through the build-up to the rematch between the two, having covered their initial fight in the first edition of the podcast. Uh, We're going to review one of the fights off the undercard, which is uh, Julio Cesar Chavez versus Larry Lacouzier, excuse me, uh, from the pay-per-view undercard, and then we'll cover the fight and all the controversial fallout before rounding off the show with a little bit of Mayweather-McGregor chat ahead of their fights in August. Um, Bob, I'll throw to you briefly just to talk about the uh, rest of the June podcasts and Patreon and all the like. Yeah, I'll recap through the other three shows in June if I can remember what they are. Uh, Void number one takes us to the WWF, I think, looking at King of the Ring. Uh, Void number two to WCW, looking at the Great American Bash. And Void number three takes us to ECW, looking at Wrestlepalooza. Reminder, we're on Patreon for five bucks a month. If you'd like early access to our shows, or to say thank you for our contributions to your podcasting month, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20rs. Links in the podcast description and on our website. Thank you, Bob. So with that, we'll jump straight into our build to the rematch segment. Um, This is basically covering the months between the initial encounter between Holyfield and Tyson, in which Holyfield uh, stopped Tyson to win the WBA Heavyweight Championship. And uh, what happened across the seven months as we got the rematch between the two. So, yeah, as I say, seven months after the fight builders finally in which Holyfield shocked the boxing world by stopping Iron Mike Tyson to capture the WBA Heavyweight Championship. The two were initially scheduled to face off again in a rematch, taking place on the 3rd of May 1997. The fight was billed as The Sound and the Fury, but the contest was postponed after Tyson suffered a bad cut over his left eye during training. The cut apparently occurred when Tyson butted heads with a sparring partner. The postponement for this was announced on the 8th of April, and the fight was then rescheduled for the 28th of June 1997. Uh, The build for the rematch between the two seemed to be built on a foundation of respect between the two men this time round. If you remember back to the build for the uh, initial fight, there was always a, a great deal of respect from Holyfield, who, who came across as very humble. Uh, but Tyson is a man of few words, and they're usually very aggressive. 
But he was much less so in the build to this fight, um, especially when you contrast what the two men said about each other in the build-up to this fight, as opposed to uh, the controversy surrounding Holyfield's comments from years ago, how he would never fight a rapist in reference to uh, legal troubles that Tyson's had in the past. Uh, One of the more humorous moments that sort of sum up this more relaxed atmosphere surrounding the fight, um, Tyson's a man, as I say, a few words in press conferences. He hates talking to the media. He was asked the question, uh, what mistakes had he made? Had he made any mistakes in the first fight? And what is he going to do to try and correct these mistakes? To which Tyson replied, well, yeah, I lost. That's pretty much the biggest mistake you can make. I'm going to try and correct it by going out there and winning. And this statement amused both his camp and Holy Foods teams with all, everyone involved really sharing a laugh. And it kind of, for me, summarised the uh, much more respectful atmosphere between the two men, which once you uh, find out what happened in the fight is uh, slightly uh, off, really. Um Holyfield, as I said, had a very relaxed demeanour for much of the build. He stated that he sees this as a contest between the two best fighters of the era. He sees them both as equally matched, but what it will come down to is that he believes the fight will be decided by who can handle pressure better. The word from the Holyfield camp, specifically his trainer, Don Turner, is that this was the best camp of Holyfield's career, and he's in even better physical shape this time around, as opposed to the initial meeting with Tyson. Teddy Atlas, for what it's worth, Tyson's former trainer, predicted to a group of reporters the night before the fight that Tyson will go out there and try to get lucky early on. But if he's unable to land that knockout punch, he'll lose his head, try to disqualify himself, either by elbowing, throwing a low blow, headbutting or biting. There was some uh, major controversy towards the... uh, as we got closer to uh, fight night, Mitch Halpin, who refereed the first fight, was chosen to officiate the rematch. However, just two days before the fight, on the 26th of June, Tyson's co-managers John Horn and Rory Holloway appeared before an emergency meeting of the Nevada State Athletic Commission and asked that Halpin be replaced. They argued that Tyson would be psychologically damaged by having Halpin in the ring. Mike Tyson is totally convinced that this man cannot be fair with him in a fight, Horn is quoted as saying. The commission rejected the protest and kept Halpin on as referee, but later that night, Halpin decided to step down. Mark Ratner, the executive director for the commission, stated that Halpin reassessed everything and he said that he refused to be made the focal point of this fight. The following morning, veteran referee Mills Lane was picked to replace Halpin, who said... I feel empathy for Mitch, but I'm ready to take this fight. Uh, we get into the weigh-ins, and Mike Tyson weighed in at 218 pounds, which is the lightest that he had been post-release from jail. Holyfield also weighed in at 218 pounds, which is notably his heaviest ever. Um, I'll come to you, Bob, first on that. Any thoughts on any of the uh, sort of news points from the build to this fight? Who was the guy who said? He'll try and get a win early, but if he doesn't, he'll get frustrated and then he'll get himself disqualified. And and and, and, and what has he got up to since? Like, has he has he got into a career of picking lottery numbers? And <laughs> and not that it was the most brave shot in the world, but what a call! He absolutely nailed it. 
uh, as I suppose as Tyson's former trainer, he must know the man inside the fighter better than anyone else, and he's called it as he sees it, and he's called it spot on. Otherwise, for me, nothing, nothing massively of note. It's you know, I think there's, you know, you're probably more relaxed when you get your uh, when you get your cut of the first pay per view, um, and I, I suspect both guys went into the rematch thinking they were going to win. I don't know that's that's true of a lot of fights too, but you're probably going to be quite relaxed if you're convinced you're not going to get beaten in, or in, in Tyson's case, you're convinced you're not going to get beaten again. Uh, Dan, any thoughts from you on any of the? Uh things aforementioned? No, I think it's it's quite a paint-by-numbers rematch sort of build where the overconfident, you know, favourite who got beat now plays the big respectful man who learns from his mistakes and uh, will go out and prove him wrong. And the guy who who won is confident that he's going to win again or have to just do the same and and the result will be the same. Um I think looking at the weights, I think it appears that Tyson's training seriously, but adapted to obviously what went wrong in the first fight. You know, trying to be a bit more nimble, trying to be a bit more, um, you know, light on his feet. So he wasn't carrying as much muscle mass for, for Holyfield. Um, and Holyfield knew that he was, you know, bullying Tyson whenever he clinched and um, got on the inside. So he boxed up even more. So... Yeah, just just a standard, you know, guys learning from what happened in the first fight and adapting, and it would have been really intriguing. I still think it probably would have been a 50-50 fight for most punters going into the actual night fight, and I don't got the odds to hand, so I can't tell you what the the, um, the markets were like. I believe Tyson was still the favourite going into the actual fight night itself for most of the pundits, because they thought he would, you know... Um, go out there and do things a little bit differently in Holyfield and Holyfield had the performance of his career on the first fight so yeah I would have been excited had this been uh, had I been back in 1997 watching this yeah I think I think you're right as you say paint by numbers it, it's, it's a stereotypical fight build really uh, when you're building towards a rematch and I mean if, if, if this was pro wrestling this is how you'd for it when you've had the uh the cocky favourite who got beat and he's now got a rematch against the plucky underdog who beat him. And like you say, it, a routine build um, for a fight that would end up breaking most gate and uh, pay-per-view records, which is uh, something uh, impressive, I would say. Um, with that, really, I, there's not too much more on the build, necessarily. It wasn't a build filled with controversy. Um, it wasn't a build built around much more than Tyson was getting a rematch at the belt he'd unexpectedly lost. Um, so we move straight into our coverage of the pay-per-view event itself. Just um, quick, I mean, would it be fair to say that it was a build so simple because it was a build that didn't need to be any more complicated? Like the the story kind of ran itself, you've got two big stars, you've got the, you know, the, the guy, you know, the, in terms of the... For, for people, from a rematch perspective, Holyfield winning the first fight was was massive for getting a rematch out of the way. And at that point, it was just like, well, the, the, it kind of wrote itself. The story in terms of the build, and, and you know, and they were like, well, we don't need to do a lot to convince the public to pay for this again. No, I mean definitely the fight itself, you know, was fantastic a time around. So you not only got the great narrative of the plucky good guy beating this fuckish, you know, brute of a favourite, but you also had an amazing fight set. You, you got the two 
great, you know, hooks of a fight being built as a pay-per-view. The story to world-class operators on paper and the fact that it's going to be on paper entertaining and, and really drawn out, really exciting fights. So when that situation happens, you don't need to do a lot, you know, as you said. Yeah, I think you're right. The make, story does make the story, you know, come to life. Yeah, I think you're both right, really. The story does write itself to an extent. Um, and when you have such a box office draw like Mike Tyson and you have someone in a van of Holyfield who is the perfect foil to that thuggish Tyson character in the good, humble, religious man and overcoming the odds and shocking the world, I mean, it's a, it's a scriptwriter's dream, really. The way everything fell into place with uh, the result of the initial match leading into the rematch. So, I I, I wouldn't say the build uh, was undermining by any stretch because it led to record buy rates and and, record, and a record setting gate and things like that. But uh, just it was an unspectacular build, if because it was so comfortable. I, I guess is would would be my summary. And yeah, with that, we move into the pay-per-view event itself. Um, we are going to cover one of the undercard fights, which is a 10-round welterweight contest between Julio Cesar Chavez and Larry Lacour- Lacour- Larry Lacourzier. Sorry, I-, I think I might refer to him as Larry throughout this fight. Um, yeah, Our referee for the contest is uh, Joe Cortez. Uh, Larry Lacourzier, fighting out of Hastings, Minnesota. Weighed in at 146 pounds. He has a record of 22 wins, uh, 11 of which coming by way of knockout, uh, six losses and one draw. And his opponent, Julio Cesar Chavez, fighting out of Me- uh, Culiacan, Mexico. He weighed in at 148 pounds, uh, entered with a record of 99 wins, 83 coming by way of knockout, just the two losses and the one draw. Um, for this, I'm just going to rattle through a few rounds at a time, and then uh, I'll throw to Bob and Dan respectively for a bit of uh, in- analysis and input on the action. So we are underway in round one. Chavez comes out quick, pressing the attack from the off, which the commentators note is, a- is unusual for him as he's a notoriously slow starter. Lacourzier keeps light on his feet, constantly backing up and constantly moving away. Towards the end of the round, Chavez lands a beautiful straight right and continues to press forward as we close out the round. There wasn't too much action here, but Chavez comfortably takes the round for me. Second, and we get the opening minute following the pattern of the first, with Lacurzio backpedalling, constantly moving away. Chavez tries to cut him off, and the crowd begins to boo the contest. There are a few small exchanges whenever Chavez is able to cut Lacuzia off, but, but the round closes out without a whole lot of action, with Chavez deliberately landing after the bell, visibly frustrated. Round three, and Lacuzia opens the round with his best combination of the fight so far, but it does no real damage, and he quickly reverts to his backing up and running away. Lacuzia goes low, which pleases the commentary team, as the ref doesn't see it. Chavez picks up the pace of his chase, and lands a nice straight right before an accidental clash of heads. Chavez lands another beautiful straight right, which lands flush, and Lacourzier doesn't seem to be slowing in his backtracking away from Chavez, and the round comes to a close. Round four, Lacourzier starts this round slightly more active, throwing a few quick punches early from the inside, rather than constantly backing away. 
Chavez responds to this with a beautiful straight right counterpunch 20 seconds in that drops Le Cousier for the flash knockdown. Le Cousier comfortably beats the count and the fight resumes. He reverts back to his earlier tactics of backing up and moving away, and his legs don't seem to have been affected at all by the knockdown. Le Cousier hits a nice combination towards the end of the round, culminating in a very nice flush uppercut. We get a warning for low blows, and the round comes to a close at the end of the fourth. Uh, Bob, your thoughts on the opening four rounds of this one? Uh, yeah, um, I feel like Le Cousier walked and sidestepped about five times as much distance as uh, Chavez did during this fight. Um, you know, and it's it's hard to work out. I mean, clearly that was you know clearly that was the strategy going in, and uh, and and hopefully Dan can fill us in a little bit more on on kind of Chavez's kind of fight history and fight for the first time I've seen either guy. Um, but yeah, it wasn't really working. Um, you know, the whole kind of run around and kind of you know try and drag a guy out and and pick your spots. He was just running around a lot, and I think the problem was he was moving so much. He couldn't land, like you know, the the whole everything I know about throwing a punch, not ever throwing one in anger, is that you need to have a very firm base. If you keep moving, it makes it very difficult to 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 one get in a position to throw a punch, but it's too for that punch to mean anything when it hits because you you got to have your your kind of drive leg pushing it through. Um, and yeah, Chavez looked comfortable enough without looking massively threatening. It wasn't the most. Uh, you know, wild and knockdowns will ever see. I think, you know, I think because they kind of just kind of rocked into one, really. Um, but four rounds, four very clear rounds, I thought, for Chavez. Um, and at the end of four, you're kind of thinking, OK, maybe it's time to change something if I'm uh, if I've been running around for four rounds and I haven't won any of them. Dan, over to you. Uh, I, I like to think of this fight really as, as keep busy. For Chavez, I mean, I'm going to call him Larry as well, Chris. I'm with you here. I mean, he he's just a stay busy opponent, really, and he's in there to take as much, little damage as possible and try and nip, you know, around with fancy jabs and fancy footwork rather than with Chavez. Because let's be honest, Chavez is an absolute lion. He is, has an amazing chin and ferocious punching power. You need to stay and move around if you can have any chance of of getting close to Chavez in terms of you know scoring points, um, and even like a defensive masterclass like um, Benavitica, you know that's how great this bloke is in terms of um, you know walking deep, walking you down. And frankly, Larry just isn't. Is he's got fancy footwork and fancy jab? That's about it. And unfortunately. The one time he got, not careless, but Chavez has got the right angle. He clocked him and that was it in round four. Um, the flash knocked down. And basically at that point, I think, in the in the um, crowd, that this was even more game over, game over than what most people signed up for. Because this fight really, it's not really for, you know, it's not really a, a big contest. Chavez is looking at, you know, even a casual observer, by looking at his record, can see that this guy is, is the real deal. And... And Larry with his, his eating hairline and his awful moustache is just, you know, there to to collect a bit. Uh, and yeah, after four rounds, we know the way it's going. It's just an interesting to see whether this will last full ten rounds or whether Chavez can get him out there early. I mean, I don't know what uh, 
commentary you had in the version of the fight you watched either of you, but in, in the version I saw, um, the commentators were banging on and on about how Le Corsier was a marathon runner. Predominantly, he trains in running marathons and partakes in a lot of them, apparently. And they were just and sort of undermining the bloke throughout about how his marathon running was coming in handy because he was just backing off and backing off. And then they were like, oh, quite sincerely, after he was knocked down in the fourth, they were like, oh, his legs don't seem to have been too affected by that knockdown. Like, it's pro- probably all those marathons. Like, it was it was quite funny. They were just par- burying the poor bloke. Um, he was clearly uh, just not in the class to do any damage to Chavez, really. And the fourth, uh, four, for, f- sorry, first four rounds really did show up a, uh, a golfing class between the two. Uh, with that, we move into the fifth round. Uh, Le Corsier opens this round, how he did the first three on his bike, moving away. The commentators note how the old Chavez would have been able to cut Le Corsier off a lot more frequently, but he seems to have lost the set of his speed in the ring. When Chavez does chase with purpose, he has, isn't putting enough punches together in combinations. Le Corsier hits a nice counter uppercut and closes out the round, but again, it's, I actually gave that fifth round for uh, Le Corsier. Um, I think I was just trying to give the poor bloke something. Uh, yeah. Charitable move, Chris. Oh, I, I, gave, I gave it to him as well. The, the two guys that know least about oh, boxing would. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more sympathy than anything. Um, it was clear how this fight was going, and he just... He was he was the busier of the two in this round, and Chavez didn't close him down with any frequency in this in this particular round. And I think in isolation he might have pinched this one. I also thought it was the round just where Chavez, mo- Chavez moved the most. I know he didn't close him down a lot, but it felt like it was the round where he was running after him the most. I thought I thought the Corsier landed the the, the the better in this round. It was a it was a very minor victory, but you know. Oh yeah, he, if he scraped it, he scraped it fifty-one percent to forty-nine percent. Um, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think I might have just been in a very generous mood. Uh, I, think, we I think he was hoping that you two would be in the judging panel for this fight rather than the experienced <laughs> judges. Really, but okay. God, uh, God help us if we were. Well, one, well, a bit of a spoiler for the outcome here, but one of the judges did give him a round, so I assume it was this one. Uh, it has to be really. yeah it can't be it can't be any of the others so I assume it was this one um, so yeah one out of three ain't too bad anyway we move into uh, round six and Chavez starts this round on the front foot with real purpose for the first time but again is mainly throwing single punches and not throwing any combinations a small cut opens above his right eye and the commentators note how Chavez has a history of problems with cuts and then they suddenly start freaking out about how they've been sprayed by his blood, apparently, all over their notes, all over them, all over their faces. And that's what they're talking about <laughs> for the last minute and a half of the round. Um, with very little action going on, to be fair. Chavez then lands a nice one-two combination as we hear the uh, bell for the end of the round. Into round seven, and Chavez stalks Le Corsier during the opening. Chavez applies pressure and it pays off as he is able to land a nice straight right through the guard of a tiring Le Corsier. Chavez keeps the pressure up, landing punches a lot more frequently as Le Corsier has tired slightly by this point. He lands a flush left hook to close out another dominant Chavez round. Um, 
that's three rounds in the bag. Uh, Dan, I'll come to you. Any further thoughts on rounds uh, five to seven? Yeah, this is what Chavez has done his entire career here. Start slow, wind it up like a dynamo, and then start really cut loose in rounds back in, well, when he first started in 15 rounds, and then as he moved to 12, he got even better, you know. Um, and even though he's won, you know, 100 of the marathons, you know, when you've got that sort of pressure relentlessly at you, and you've still got to keep your cardio up, you know, in sprints for, for three-minute rounds, eventually... Lesser guys like like Larry will start to tire, um, and unfortunately, this is what was going to happen. And you know, he does start having his head snap back quite a few times by, by Chavez's um, punches. But and yeah, I, I kind of do agree with the commentators. So this is although he's you know he's definitely in the twilight of his career here, Chavez. Has this been you know the guy of '87 and 1990, the guy who won um, fights of the year twice? You know, this would have been all over, I think, by Maybe around five to six after that flash knockdown, but you know he's definitely you know there's no trouble for Chavez at the minute. It's uh it's quite an easy victory for him, um, and providing he doesn't do anything anything stupid or that cut really begins to open up, he's you know this is going only one way. Half of that. Uh, oh, go Chris. Oh god! Oh, Carol, we we picked up mute issues with Chris. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, this this was kind of after that that round five where we kind of saw sort of that course yeah, the round. It was very much back on uh, Chavez. I think at one point the, the beginning of the eighth round, the commentator goes, "Like course yeah, he's back on his bicycle." I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds about right." For, for uh, I just weeded around the ring, um, but yeah, Chavez largely looked in well, almost looked in complete control the entire fight. Um, and you, and Dan, it, like, here's a question for, for a guy who's, oh, Chris is gone, okay. for, Dan, for a guy who, uh, you, you would say is a guy that moves around a lot, like La Courcier, if you're seven rounds into this fight and you're at best five rounds down, what do you do from there? Um, you're relying on, is just known to be this relentless pressure fighter. You, you are sort of, you know, shrugging for up because you have power or a flash knockdown of, of, of Chavez. And round seven, you're tiring. You know, ascend or does something magical happen, really? Because, you know, fighters get hurt. You know, the cut that you said is already there. Potentially, you would try and rough him up a little bit, try and force that cut, get a little bit deeper, and try and get. There is the pretty personally what I think of as really, you know, good scoring punches. But if you can nick five rounds whilst you've been under that lockdown, if you that, if you nick rounds some very. You know, just enjoy that style of boxing. You could nick a draw. But again, against someone like Chavez, who is known to have energy and good punching power and good stamina, throughout a 
he hasn't got a lot of options. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's just kind of how it goes with this kind of style. Um, is that against the guy as solid as Chavez, you can't get in. Um, you then spend the latter rounds essentially chasing a guy that your entire game plan is to run, like let him run after you. And when when your role is to then essentially push back, that's very difficult because you know in pushing back you're just going to walk into a punch. Um, and yeah, I think you're. I think also if you're a guy like the Courcier, and they, they, they kind of said it in rough, even when they weren't implying it, um, if you're relying on that kind of style in terms of you know using your longevity, it does make sense to try and drag it into 8, 9, 10 and then see if you can open anything up. But as you say, Dan, I think it's the case of if you do do that and you do do the style that involves running around a lot, you do just tire as well. Um, and it's very, very difficult to, to open yourself up against a guy like Chavez, I suspect. Um, without opening yourself up for, for for a knockout in the in the later rounds, Chris, I think you're back with us now. I am. Um, sorry, yeah, I don't yes. know what happened there. I don't know I either, but we, we, we'll carry on regardless. Um, if you've got anything more, to, I know you missed that conversation. You got anything more to add at the end of round seven? Uh, if not, let's uh, plow round number eight. Oh, lovely! Straight into round number eight, eight then for me. Yeah. Uh, Le Corsier is very clearly in survival mode here. This round followed the exact pattern of the fight generally up until this point. The commentary team uh, actually say, looks another dullard, to summarise things pretty accurately. Chavez was, of course, the aggressor, intermittently cutting the backpedalling Le Corsier off. We're straight into round number nine, where after a slow start, Le Corsier is warned to watch the headbutts after another collision between the two men. Chavez lands a vicious left hook which snapped Lucuzier's head back, but he doesn't follow up with any real emphasis. Chavez applies a lot of pressure as the round closes out, but it is able to get anything close to a finish. Into the tenth and final round, there is a tentative opening, during which the announcers take a moment to, to promise the audience that the main event of the evening will not be anything like this. Little did they know how right they would be. Right hand staggers Le Cousier, but he was unable to. Uh, but Chavez is unable to follow up as we head into the final minute. The commentators bury the human bicycle towards the end of the fight, pointing out how he hasn't fought for the first nine, so why would he fight in the last one? And with that, uh, we bring this ten-round fight to a close. Uh, we'll go to you first, uh, Bob, on this one. Ten rounds in the books. The judges give it by unanimous decision. Uh, what are your thoughts on this fight overall? Um, you know, we, we kind of got saying the same thing quite a lot, but it wasn't really a fight that evolved or changed much. Um, Chavez, you know, if you had the, the heat map on both guys, you'd have a, a big Chavez heat map basically in the centre where that big gold logo was, and then you'd have uh, Le Corsier's heat map would just be a big circle right around the outside, which is essentially like where he was likely moving. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about boxing to be able to critique or even perhaps criticise um, Le Corsier's style. He had a game plan against the guy that I suspect he probably knew was better than he was um, and you know to a point boxes have gone for years and years just you know being a game plan of do not lose first up um, but yeah it was quite clear early on that Chavez was was the more accomplished fighter with the better game plan and La Courcier's tactic didn't work um, 
and I don't know how critical you can be of them for not changing that because I I feel the only way to change it would have been to just tell him to walk into a walk into a big right and end it there and then. Uh, but yeah, not the not the most riveting or the most in depth of fights, but you know, it, interesting to watch a guy, you know, who's been around a long, long time having that that kind of ring command and uh, and win so decisively. Uh, Dan, over to you. Your thoughts on this fight? Yeah, I think like Bob, it was a. This is an example of a showcase a showcase fight for the paying public to see a legend like Chavez against a guy who most likely won't get blown out in two rounds because of his style and is there to survive and get ten rounds under his belt and not make Chavez look good because he's not like a he's not a robber but in a wrestling sense but you know he's there to survive and, and maybe show enough skills. Uh, a more competitive contest or competitive fight down the line against someone you can you can actually beat, like a lesser version of Chavez, for example. Um, in terms of the actual man himself in the ring, Chavez, this is um, you know this is another tune-up fight for him after he lost to De La Hoya the year before. Um, he goes on to have another couple of full-title fights um, when he's used to meet Angel Gonzalez, and then loses another match with De, uh, De La Hoya. Um, this is probably not even, you know, the guy definitely in his twilight of his career, you know, you know, comparison to what he was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but it's, you know, from a guy who didn't grow up in this era, it's just nice to see a guy like Chavez, you know, in a fight. And these, this, some, to some people, you know, this has been, you know, the Mexican audience, you know, they would have wanted to pay Chavez regardless, even if this was um, a fight which no one in God's green earth would have given um, La Corsier a chance of winning. So, this, you know, this is an example, that, you know, for a wrestling angle, it's like having, you know, Shawn Michaels, you know, it's like having Bret Hart against Jean-Pierre Lafitte. You know you're not going to have Jean-Pierre Lafitte win, but you're going to get a case your big star and you're going to hopefully get a decent, entertaining fight out of it. And this was just what it was. Card as well. Um, I, I can't think what that fight, um, what that match was. Bret Hart and the feet was September. Would have been Diesel. Not quite. Not on the, uh, yeah, a nice comparison, but I don't know that uh, uh, yeah, the feet was followed by uh, Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, I suppose, just to drag it around and wrestling matches. <laughs> Uh, but yes, uh, go on, Chris. Well, yeah, it's, it's, a subsid- it's a subsidiary of the Western 20 years ago podcast. I've got to get in there somehow. Yes, well done. We'll drag people back in. <laughs> Some of the problems show it are otherwise confused 40 minutes in. But yeah, go on, Chris. Um, yeah, the fight overall was a, was a bit dull, if I'm honest. Um, the commentary team really played it up as if Chavez looked old and slow and frustrated at his like physical limitations. I didn't quite see it that way. Um he he's clearly an aging fighter who who's like past the the be- his best days are behind him maybe and in his better days he clearly would have had the speed power edge to put someone like Lacuzier away comfortably and finish the fight within the first couple of rounds um but like he was comfortable and like a, a ring general just in his element, never in any danger. I, I, I didn't quite see it that way. And I was surprised that Chavez actually fought on to 2005. So, I mean, he got another eight years in him uh, from this point. 
So I didn't quite buy into the narrative that the, the announcers were, were telling me throughout this fight, but it it wasn't um, a spectacle, but it was an interesting watch nonetheless. Um, anything to add to any of that before we move into the main event? All right, so let's roll. Let's move on to the main event of the evening. The fight billed as The Sound and the Fury. The long-anticipated rematch between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. Live from the Solar MGM Grand in Las Vegas for the WBA Heavyweight Championship of the World. The champion, Evander the Real Deal Holyfield, weighed in at 218 pounds. He enters with a professional record of 33 wins, 24 coming by knockout and just three losses. The challenger, Iron Mike Tyson, also weighed in at 218 pounds. He has a professional record of 45 wins, 39 coming by knockout and just two losses. We have a late referee change with Mills Lane, the man in charge. We are underway in round one and it's a sharp start from Holyfield who quickly takes the centre of the ring, avoiding Tyson's punches and answering back with his own, showing the similar attitude to the one he showed throughout the first fight. Tyson continuously backs continuously backs Tyson against the ropes, landing some beautiful punches, and thus far looks to be the stronger of the two men. Well into the last minute of the round, and Holyfield lands a nice-looking combination, begins taking the fight aggressively to Tyson. As the round comes to a close, the arena erupts into chants of Holyfield. Bob, I come to you at the end of the first round. Uh, Holyfield picking things up. That's fine. Yeah, basically, I mean, the yeah round one was, I, I seem to recall from from the, the fight we watched it last year, round one was probably one of only two rounds that Tyson really won during that fight. Um, and that was basically him coming out and basically throwing a storm and Holyfield weathering that storm. There was no storm this time around, and I was trying to work out exactly what Tyson's plan was. And I hope Dan might have a little bit more insight into exactly what either what he could pick up during the fight or what kind of people said afterwards. I don't know whether maybe Tyson thought, shit, if I go out earlier and he weathers my storm, I won't have any energy left. I think that was one problem he had during the last fight. But equally... The game has always been beat people, beat people early, beat people decisively. As much as you've got to learn from what perhaps went wrong in the first fight, here of any major note, and and we never really saw that change. I think in the next couple of rounds either. But yeah, Holyfield looked good, looked very strong. It, you know, it looked like his plans hadn't changed much since the first fight. Um, you know, kind of keep Tyson at a distance, but when he gets in close, get him in really close so he can't throw anything. Um, and he looks in complete control. Dan, your thoughts on that opening round? As Bob said, you know, Holyfield doesn't need to do anything different because from all he's seen of Tyson, is Tyson knows one way of fighting that's brute force, straight ahead, smash mouth, smash mouth style. And he fought the perfect fight to beat that last time around, so he just needs to do it again. Um, and even better, Tyson's storm that Bob mentioned, and it didn't come. So even better, you know, you, you're, you're picking off your game plan, you're doing brilliantly, and all you need to do is just keep that up for, for 12 rounds. And, you know, when that eventually comes, you know, do what you've been doing um, for the 12 rounds, um, or 11 rounds, um, what you have did in November last year, which was great from Holyfield's perspective. Um, Bob, to answer your question about you know what was Tyson's game plan, um, 
I think it's inevitable that they must have thought we had to pace ourselves a little bit more because, you know, you, I think he had about five rounds, I think, possibly, um, where he was live opponent in the first fight and then got caught and then had no energy left afterwards. So I, I some sort of slow, more of a slow burn um, wind up that, um, you know, it was like a similar to Chavez. Um, but the other thing I thought of potentially is that, you know, boxing is so much more, you know, what goes on in the heads, you know, because it's such a mano a mano sport and as big and, you know, fuggish as Tyson acts in public, you know, there's bound to be some kind of mental block there that this was the guy that put, you know, picked me apart for, for 10 rounds six months ago. So, and those wounds don't immediately heal. And it takes a big, you know, really mentally strong person to, to kind of really spat this at the back of your mind and, and go straight into this next fight. So, you know, that first round, Tyson might have, you know, you know, not so, it's not maybe subconsciously kind of go a bit more cautious, work out how, what sort of version of Holyfield this is going to be before um, starting to really start to pick up the pace a little bit and see if he can exercise a little bit, a few of those demons. Um, it obviously cost him the round because this was as clear a Holyfield round as any of the first fight, but. Um, as we'll see, as in the first round, this probably this you know real um, dominance that Holyfield showed in the first few minutes probably didn't do Tyson a lot of good mentally either. So I, I probably would have been better for him to actually just go out there and actually go full hog like he would have, like he did in the first fight. Uh, Dan, do you think to, to sort of cross sports and timelines in a very odd way here? Um, with someone like Ronda Rousey, who, when she re- reached the pinnacle of of her sport in her particular time, like she wanted to evolve and 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 change things up, and when she took on Holly Holm, she tried to outstrike someone who had far more striking experience and things like that, and was beat comfortably. And then when she came back against Amanda Nunez over a year later, again strike someone who had far more striking experience. Do you think there's an element of ego with people like maybe Ronda or Tyson at the, who have been at the very pinnacle of their sport and they refuse to be beaten in a specific facet of the sport in that Holyfield comfortably out- and outclinched and outfought and outbullied Tyson in the first fight and controlled him on the inside, was able to drive him back comfortably. And part of Tyson's redemption to himself wants to beat Holyfield at that game. He doesn't necessarily want to come out there and blow him away. He wants to re-establish that strength and dominance in that particular facet of the sport, as well as picking up the win here. Do you think there's an element that that can come into it with people at the top level in combat sports, or do you not really... No, I think you make a very good point there, Chris. It's, it's definitely true, and I kind of that attitude is absolutely terrible to have when you when you're in combat sports. Because um, I, I look at sort of you know what Lennox Lewis did when he suffered that terrible loss to um, Hasim Rabin when he was at the top of the game. Um, he got overconfident, like Tyson did. He didn't take his opponent seriously, and he got beat. But instead of then trying to you know bully and fight. Ramen. He just stuck to what he knew and he 
did his defensive counter punching, you know, ram rod jab and counter right hook, and it took him to, and he blew Raman away in the rematch. I don't know whether Tyson ha- would have had the tools to, uh, if if he fought like that, but I I considering the man that Tyson is. And what he's done in public, I would be astonished if there wasn't some sort of ego that, that you said there, Chris, where he wants to show Holyfield exactly why they call me I Mike Tyson and I'll bully and I'll fight him. I think you make a really good point there. One of the uh, pr- prominent lines from the Tyson camp that I didn't really touch on in the uh, build to this fight, was that in the first fight, Holyfield had fought Mike Tyson, but this time around, he was going to be fighting Iron Mike Tyson. And while it's just a pretty little uh, tagline and a catchphrase and something you can market as a team and build around, uh, it also might have an element of insight into the mindset that Tyson had and his potential game plan in this fight, and that might be part of why Tyson got so frustrated so quickly is that he had the game plan of re-establishing the, the strength and the, the clinch dominance and wanted to force Holyfield back and re-establish that level of dominance. When he gets in there in the first couple of rounds and Holyfield's taken him apart like he did seven months ago, he gets frustrated and then we see what happens towards the end of the fight. It could all play into it. Can, can I put on that a sec, Chris? Um, yeah, just... Yeah, cool, uh, cool. It is my show, I suppose. Um, just, uh, um, just to add something different on that. Not, not in necessarily to say I disagree. I, I think, by and large, I think you, you, you kind of, Chris, you, you opened up a very good point, and, uh, and Dan kind of added to it. But the, the one thing that knowledge from what we discussed about Tyson last time, from what I, I I've certainly seen more of, of, of Ronda Rousey is that one thing they both kind of have in common is that they both had a quite significant run of winning fights very, very decisively, very, very quickly, and often in very, very similar manners. Now, I can discuss more about Rousey because I know more about her. But you look at her run, a lot of those matches one after another were all first-round finishes, and a lot were with, you know, the armbar, amongst everything else, focusing on our judo skills. And I know when we spoke about Tyson last time, one of the thoughts that why Tyson struggled so much last time was that he just wasn't the kind of guy that ever needed to go deep in fights because he always won them in three rounds or four rounds, whatever it was. And if you always win a fight in three or four rounds, and if you can always win them in part by just running straight up the middle in the first couple of rounds and unloading this barrage, then you never get tested and you never have to find other ways of winning. And so I don't necessarily disagree with the overall viewpoint, but it can be quite difficult to say, is it arrogance of these guys for not adapting? I don't think Ronda Rousey didn't adapt because she didn't want to. She didn't adapt because she never had to. Up until the point it was too late. It's like, you know, you, you can't train to be as good of a, a stand-up boxer as Holly Holm, if you're Ronda Rousey, in six months. You need to train across that over multiple years, facing guys that are consistently better stand-up strikers than she was facing in her earlier fights. And you have to get tested more to get better. Um, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think that I just thought that was a, a counterpoint I'd make. I, 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 I do agree with you there, Bob, but I, I meant more from not necessarily uh, adapting your skill set, so, but maybe adapting your game plan and sort of that insight into touching... But, but if, you, if you've never had, enough and they, and, and never had another game plan, how do you adapt? Like if Tyson, no, but this is what I'm... 
what I mean is, why did Tyson not come out in this fight and unleash that barrage, as we've seen countless times? Because he, he knew he couldn't against Holyfield, so he did adapt. But in doing so, he took away his biggest strength. Because he's yeah. never going to outbox a technician like Evander Holyfield. But so I suppose arrogance might be a bit harsh in this context. But I, I think he sort of cut his nose off to spite his face in that if he did have a chance of winning this fight necessarily, it would have been in the first two to three rounds, really. Like when you look at the, the both men's skill sets and... The, I mean, the biggest evidence you can have to look at what will happen between two people who are going to fight is have they fought before and what happened the first time round. Yeah, we know I, that Holyfield can go on, Chris, dominate. Sorry. sorry, Bob. We know that Holyfield can dominate on the inside against Tyson. We know that he can outmuscle him and outstrength him and manhandle him around the ring and control him like no one else had done to Tyson up until that point. And Tyson's best chance was coming out and trying to blow him away early, and maybe like his former trainer pointed out, maybe he'd get, have to get a little bit lucky, but maybe he could knock Holyfield out. Holyfield's lost fights before, and Tyson's knocked out elite-level fighters and boxers before. And maybe in adapting to, okay, I'm going to try and out-clinch Holyfield here, I'm going to try and out-manoeuvre and out-muscle him, rather than let my hands go early, he's done himself a disservice and done his chances of winning in this fight a disservice, whether that be through trying to game plan properly or an an ego thing where he wants to beat Holyfield at his own game. Whatever the reasoning behind that, I think the outcome's still the same in that it affects his game plan from the off in a negative way. I don't think think many people would have said that Mike Tyson was likely to win this fight on a 12-round decision. If the fight was going 12 rounds, Holyfield would have won it. Oh, yeah, that's a more general point, but I think, you know, yes, uh, yeah, I don't think Tyson was ever going to outbox Holyfield across 12 rounds. I think if he was going to win the fight, he would win it before the 12th round. Um, I suspect his change of plan, and it was quite a significant change of plan, was the difference between fight one and fight two, I suspect may have been he thought, let's try and hold back because I know he can withstand my barrage in round one. What if I throw it in round five instead? And maybe that was the change of plan. And obviously, well, we, yeah. we never, we're never able to find out. Go on, Dan. Well, because he, remember he did, well, remember in the last fight, round five was the round where we thought, okay, here comes Tyson. This is like, you know, the first two rounds, the first four rounds, sorry, were pretty even. And then round five was Tyson's best round. And then Holyfield caught with that cut, that beautiful counterpunch and knocked him down the sixth. And that took all the wind out of his sails. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not disagreeing with you, Bob, in terms of the, you know, the, the point about, um, guys like Tyson and, and, and Rousey who don't know any way to win other than to win early because he has done 12 rounds before in his when he was you know in the 80s when he was dominant champion you know, he's gone 12 rounds with Tony Tucker who was for the that was for the all the that was for all the marbles that was for WBC WBA IBF and that was really close not close but um, like a, it wasn't a unanimous wide shutout decision that was a nip and tuck fight with, you know, Tucker getting a couple of rounds here and there. So I wouldn't say that Tyson couldn't outbox Holyfield for 12 rounds. That's how he's going to win. But he can outbully Holyfield for large swathes of the fight, pace himself a little bit better, and then maybe go for the knockout a little bit earlier. I think that's probably his plan rather than, you know, 
barrage him in, in a later round and hope for the best. You know, if you're, you're coming in lighter than he's already has been, you know, let's try and withstand Hurley for a little bit longer and then slowly break him down with well-timed bursts of power. Um, obviously, it doesn't go particularly well for them, but I don't think, you know, I don't think there's it's the the adage of Tyson only knows how to win one way and that's to blow out people in four rounds. That's obviously his preferred way and that's the way that has, you know, happened for a long time, but he has got experience in 12 rounders, so, you know, I don't, it's not as if he's completely alien to going down the cha- in the championship rounds. So, Anything else on that, or should we move straight into round number two? We'll be here until midnight if we don't, so uh, <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good idea. Okay, round number two. Um, every time Tyson tries to get on the front foot here, Holyfield is able to tie him up comfortably and force him back. And constantly re-establishing control of the ring. Um, early in the round, we have a noteworthy flashpoint as uh, Tyson looks to throw a right at the same time. Holy was, Holyfield is throwing a left hook. Tyson leans into the punch. Holyfield ducks it, and their heads collide, which opens a nasty-looking cut above Tyson's right eye. Referee Mills Lane was very quick to call time in fooling ringside officials that the cut was caused by accidental headbutt. This is noteworthy because, as we know, that if this cut was to cause the end of the fight before four rounds had been completed, then this would be a no contest as opposed to... Uh, any sort of other decision. It would immediately be ruled a no contest or a draw or however way you'd see it. There would be no winner or loser. Yeah, um, if it was round five or onwards, it would go to the, the judges' scorecards for, from rounds one to four, I think, was the was the idea, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Judge, judges score the fight. Yeah, yeah. Provide decision, but unless four rounds have been completed, there's a no contest. Um, we're back underway after the brief stoppage for the cut, and Holyfield maintains control comfortably. He bullies Tyson back against the ropes, and Tyson constantly looks to the referee for assistance as he is forced back. Holyfield wrestles Tyson into the ropes, and Mills Lane briefly pauses the action to warn both fighters about the incessant clinching. The round comes to a close with Holyfield having dominated the action firmly in control whenever the two men tie up. Uh, Bob, come to you on that one. Thoughts on round number two? Yeah, I thought Tyson looked a little bit more aggressive this time, but I think he had just as little impact as he did in round number one. Um, but I, I, I think the only real talking point um, from this round was the the, the, the clash of heads. Um, you know, I don't have a great eye for these things. I don't have a sharp eye for boxing. My instinct was it was an accidental collision. Chris, I think you described it very well. It was two guys essentially doing the opposite thing. Um, one guy throwing a left, one guy throwing a white, one going over, one ducking under, and as they came up together, and as you know, that was kind of one thing we saw during the, the first fight and during this one was that whenever Holyfield got close, his inclination was to close up the gap, and they kind of came together. It was a nasty cut, but my my inclination and my belief was that it was a an accidental clash of heads, and that you know I, I, this was really the flashpoint. I think, in my view, is that if there was a a point where things turned and there was a point that precipitated what happens in round three, 
it was Tyson believing, I think wrongly, that he got headbutted intentionally. Combine that with the fact that he clearly wasn't getting anywhere in this fight, anywhere fast. We talk about his potential strategy and his potential idea of maybe be patient and try and push away at push your way out in later rounds. His demeanour wasn't that of a guy that thought this is all part of the plan. Um, and yeah, uh, a big flashpoint, uh, a big moment in, you know, in, in admittedly only a three-round fight. Um, but yeah, I, I think Holyfield looked in control and I, I, my ruling on the headbutt is accidental, um, unless you can tell me otherwise. Dan, your thoughts on that round? I, no, I agree with you. I thought it was accidental. I thought... Compared to, I remember there was a there was a moment in the first fight where um, you, Chris, and Bob thought that Holyfield went in above his head quite deliberately to rough tighten up, and I thought this was nowhere close to this bad. Um, yeah, again, we now know that a lot of Tyson's camp thought that Holyfield was doing excessive headbutting in the first fight, um, and clearly Tyson believed him because this is switch flicking on in his head which says this guy is illegally headbutting me he's been doing it um in both the fights that we have done had now and this you know the referees on the officials aren't helping me here um and it gets progressively worse as, as round three goes on but this is definitely a turning point um I, I don't know whether this is like again drawn up from the cut that tyson gets as well maybe he that's another sort of flashpoint that he has, but is the turn the huge turning point in time, and it's it takes you know he's gone into desperate fight mode where he get you know it goes into anger rather than actually trying to win a fight. He wants to beat this guy up rather than trying to win, and that obviously causes a downfall in uh, uh, the next round. Yeah, I mean, Holyfield picked up where he left off in the first round, in, in this round here. Uh, he, he looked like, he knew how to, he knows in this fight going in how to beat Mike Tyson. You need to get inside his head, don't give him anything, bully him where you can, try and control him, control his movements, push him back, and get in tight, don't let him throw his hands. And he's just doing it perfectly. And it's frustrating Tyson. When Tyson doesn't have things go his way, he's not one that has the necessary mental capacity to to deal with it in a fight environment. He, he He's not... Holyfield's pre-fight statement about who deals with pressure better is just showing up to be completely true. And Tyson can't handle the pressure of the fight not going to plan, whatever his plan may have been. This is where it comes back to what I was saying after the first round about maybe a bit of ego in that Tyson's plan might have been to out-manoeuvre, out-bully and out-strength and control the ring against Holyfield. It wasn't a very good plan, was it? No, but that's what I mean. It, that's why he turned so frustrated so quickly. And the headbutt, which, I, I, yeah, act completely accidental in my mind, um, is sort of the culmination of that. He feels that he was incessantly headbutted in the first fight and the referee didn't call it there's all the controversy two days before the fight where they go before the Nevada State Athletic Commission try and get the uh, referee changed so much pressure on the referee that he steps aside voluntarily the new referee steps in there's an accidental butt of heads in the second round and he doesn't deduct a point Tyson's plan's not working he's frustrated he's feeling high out done by and then this new referee ain't calling the headbutts against him either and he loses it, 
and that plays out in the third round. And I think after the fight, they talk about how premeditated what happens in the third round was by Tyson, having spat out his mouth guard beforehand. And I think it's probably around this point with the headbutt and how he's controlled in the second round. He thinks, I'm out of here. I'm done. I don't want to fight anymore. I'm I'm done, and I'm looking for a way out. And I think uh, it might have been you, Bob, who said it's like a light switch, and it just, just goes off in his head, and the headbutt is the culmination of a uh, completely accidental headbutt in my mind, as I say, but it's the culmination of frustrations and the fight not going the way he wants, and Tyson's ready to, to break some rules. So with that, we go straight into the third round. Tyson starts the round aggressively, throwing hard punches with real purpose as he looks to change the momentum of the contest. He's improved here to the extent that the contest is much more even, but Holyfield isn't having everything, and Holyfield is no longer having everything go his way. Chris, Tyson, can I a sec, just quickly, I think you, you, I don't know why you didn't spot it or you were going to come to it later, but the one thing you did miss right before the beginning of round three was uh, Tyson come out of his corner for the bell. Uh, before the bell, and he didn't have his mouth guarding, uh, and the ref spotted it and sent him back. Uh, I thought that was of note, if nothing else. Apologies, you were going to come to it after the after the fact, but I thought I'd fill it in, if not. Um, quite an interesting little uh, uh, insight into what might have about to happen. No, uh, you, you're very well to uh, point that out, because I, I had uh, skipped over it. So, yeah, cheers, Bob. Yeah, uh, when you see how the third round's about to play out, that is a very interesting side note. Um, so as I say, yeah, Tyson has improved here to the extent that it's an even contest and Holyfield isn't having everything go his way, but Tyson hasn't really established any level of control in the fight. Both men begin to open up a bit more and trade punches, which favours Tyson, obviously, who lands a few good right hands, with, but Holyfield, again, is more than holding his own. With over 30 seconds remaining in the third round, as the two clinch, Tyson leans in and seems to bite Holyfield, who jumps back, shouts in shock and pain, and jumps spinning around in the air. The referee calls time, and Holyfield is very, very unhappy. Tyson, with the referee's back sort of turned, charges across the ring and shoves Holyfield into the ropes. Holyfield is frantically gesturing to his ear. The camera then pans in, and you can clearly see a fair amount of blood. Uh, on the ear of Holyfield, who is very evidently in a lot of pain. The referee deducts a point from Mike Tyson, and the fight is set to continue. Beforehand, before we're underway again, uh, they show a replay of the biting incident, which is just absolutely horrendous. It's so vicious. As they lean in, Tyson just really sinks in a bite, and the, the reaction from Holyfield is immediate and desperate. He just tears himself away from the bite in absolute agony. Uh, in the aftermath of this, as he pulls himself away, you can see Tyson spit something out onto the floor of the ring, and it's just brutal. Um, Tyson, in this intermission, after, when time was called, just before the fight was resumed, is uh, quoted as telling the referee, uh, Mills Lane, that the damage to Holyfield's ear was caused by a punch, to which Lane was succinctly replied with, Bullshit, before deducting a point. <laughs> the fight resumes, and both men come out swinging once more. Holyfield lands a lovely left uppercut, and in the ensuing clinch, it seems as if Tyson tries to sink in another bite, which draws another huge reaction from Holyfield. The round comes to a close, and Holyfield is completely livid. 
Um, before we get into the aftermath, because there's a lot of confusion before any sort of official decision is given, I'll come to you first, Dan. Your thoughts on just that, the chaos that ensued in that round? Uh, welcome to the most notorious round in boxing. Oh my god. Um, I just love how, like, you can see the holy ear lying on the canvas. You know, part of the his earlobes hanging, hanging down, and Tyson spits his ear out. That's disgusting. But the referee um, um, basically goes over and calls over the doctor and calls over the um, the ringside commissioner. And the doctor goes over to Holyfield and and inspects him and the referee just goes it's a disqualification you beat him I saw it happen I saw it right there and I was, I, I want to give a huge credit to the referee because if you know it was he was probably you know kind of giving a wee wink nods to the head to kind of let because of the sheer magnitude of it but he actually wanted to disqualify him which is what he should have happened because yeah <laughs> goodness sake um, did this fight only go on because it, uh, you know, I know it went on for a little bit longer, but did it only continue because of the, the two names involved and the... the yes, the, the, there's yeah. absolutely no doubt in my mind that had this been in a, a small hall in, you know, San Antonio or in, or at York Hall, this would have been called off immediately and the, and the box would have been banned for life. Because there's no place in this sport for an act of that savagery and brutality um, which I would know it's kind of ironic considering this is boxing where people get knocked out for a living but that, it, it, there is that's absolutely it's an absolutely disgraceful heinous act that Tyson did there which was clearly premeditated by what he did before the round even started um, and judging by the sheer red mist that descended upon him um, after all the Holyfield headbutts. And I was, you know, in round three, I was purposely trying to look out for a moment where Holyfield or another, you know, aggressive clinch that might have set that spark off again. But nothing that really happened in that in that round three that really made me think, oh, yeah, that's the trick of the moment that Tyson just goes over the edge. Um and yet, as the um, the commissioner, the doctor, basically say, this you know, Holyfield is fine to continue. He's not like he's losing blood by the quarter of a pound here. He's just so the fight goes on, and Tyson does it again. He does it again, and that kind of makes this <laughs> this, this action even more irredeemable. Because look, the red mist might descend if we all have done or fought something where which we regret in the heat of a moment and Tyson, you know, bit someone's ear. Oh well. Let's go on and <gasps> try and make the fight continue. Uh, and then he does it again. So that just makes it clear to see that this guy just wanted to hurt Holyfield and was vicious, he was vindictive and jealous of how much success Holyfield was getting two rounds before and, and somewhat in the, in the round and um, we'll come on to what happens, you know, afterwards. But uh, yeah, just heinous, vindictive, despicable acts um, from a horrible human being. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, your take on everything round three? Oh, where to begin? Um, 
Uh, yeah, I, I said I cut you off because I, I thought that was quite an important part to add in. But Tyson does just look to start round three without a mouth guard in, and it's not impossible to think that that was unintentional. But it's very, very difficult to think that was unintentional. Um, and yeah, like it's it, it's weird. Like there is a boxing round going on amongst all this, but it kind of doesn't matter like I you know I thought Tyson was his most aggressive during this round I thought Holyfield once again didn't look troubled again like you know in, in a normal fight I don't know Holyfield just seemed to have his have his number and maybe you know we come back to the quote you, you Chris you read out in the first 10-15 minutes of the show about the guy who said you know he'll get frustrated and then he'll get himself disqualified by any of these following methods and that's exactly what he did um I'm astonished the fact there was, like, it wasn't like he just beat him on the ear. Holyfield's missing, like, a, an, a centimetre and a half slice of the top of his ear. It's like someone took, like, a, a salami slice into the end of his ear and just chopped the first bit off. Um, it's astonishing it carried on. I mean, I'm astonished that Holyfield even thought, you know, for a second he would want to carry on. I guess the stakes are pretty high. Um, and then I'm not, I'm not... I'm convinced that Tyson doesn't try to bite him again before he does the second time. Like, you know, he is moving his head around Holyfield's head in between the two bites. As in, like, it looks like he's shaping for what would have been the second. Obviously, it wasn't before he did it. Um, what's, you know, we're, we're discussing one of the most memorable and bizarre and historically, I don't want to say significant, but noteworthy moments in sporting history right now. And you watch it and you're like, fuck, it makes less sense now I've seen it than it did before I did. Um, and yeah, I, I don't really know where to go from there. It's just so strange. But I think, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll go to the aftermath, and Chris, I'm sure you'll, you'll fill in a lot of the detail. My impression is Tyson just worked out he... You know, he wasn't going to win the fight. And as the guy said before the fight happened, if he once he works that out, he'll get himself disqualified. Um, you know, the the bit we see in the aftermath in terms of the same night is is Tyson maintaining it was kind of revenge for the headbutt. Yeah, but if it was revenge for the headbutt, you'd have bitten him on the ear and then you'd have carried on like normal. It's not revenge for the headbutt if you bite him on the ear, restart, and then bite him again. I don't think that argument holds up. It is one of the most perplexing and vicious acts I could ever imagine seeing in combat sport. It's just so... Like, you know, everyone knows this fight, and everyone knows what happens. Everyone knows the bite fight. Everyone knows Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear, basically. (laughs) Everyone knows that story. But, and you're like... He's not really going to do it. Like, you're not going to just sink your teeth around his ear and tear it off and then spit it on the floor. <laughs> and then he does it, and you're like, what What has happened? And then the fight just carries on for a bit, and then he does it again. It's astonishing. Like, you have to see it. to. There's, there isn't a way of describing this that, that makes sense because it's so out of the ordinary. Um, it was just absolutely perplexing. Um, I mean, a credit to Holyfield because, like, he jumps up and down a little bit, but like, 
he just had part of his ear torn off by another man's teeth. Like, I don't know how he kept his calm, how he did. Then Tyson charges across the ring and pushes him when the referee's called behind. Holyfield just keeps his composure, goes to his corner a little bit, gets checked out by the doctor, then comes back, just carries on. He's not complaining, like, well, you're not DQing him. Just keeps his head, sees out the rest of the round. Like, it, he, I don't think he knew how to react either. I don't think anyone, there's no precedent for this. What do you do when another man tears someone's ear off with their teeth? Like, it's just oh. astonishing. You Chris, have to see it to believe. Chris, you're just killing me, just describing it back. I've watched this fight twice, and still I'm laughing at how <laughs> absurd all of his description is. And in the space of a minute, it's insane. It's absolutely it's, insane. It's probably one of the most noteworthy pieces in modern well modern sporting folklore really like it's astonishing in across all sports it, you have to see it to believe it um moving swiftly back to the action so things finish at the end of the third round uh both guys retreat back to their respective corners suddenly you have a swarm of people jumping into the ring and people around holyfield in his camp begin celebrating jumping up and down then Tyson charges across the ring and a mass brawl begins to ensue with, of course, Tyson at the heart of it. There's police involved, people being shoved and punched and pushed. Tyson's furious about something. The announcers aren't sure what's happened. There's been no official announcement. They only describe the scenes as sad and ugly. In this melee, we get a good look at Holyfield's ear and it's even worse than you saw in the replay of the fight. It's a massive chunk of ear missing and there's a lot of blood basically there's there's no there's, you have to be blunt when describing it without yet having received official confirmation it begins to be clear that Mills Lane has in fact disqualified Mike Tyson Holyfield then leaves the ring and a swarm of people around Mike Tyson trying to keep him calm and prevent him from doing any more damage to anyone else uh, we cut immediately to an impromptu interview with Mills Lane who explains the decision, announcing that Mike Tyson has in fact been disqualified after his second bite attempt. Or second successful bite. Probably his fourth bite attempt, as you point out, Bob. Mills defends his actions over not deducting a point with the fatigue. Is this on the judge's scorecard? The uh, n- number of bites thrown, number of bites you know, <laughs> landed. Bite, 50% bite success rate. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, Com- Mills compute by stats show that uh, Mike Tyson has a 33% success rate of biting on the inner ear. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, you, 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 I feel like we should take this seriously, but you just can't. Like this is such a historic moment, but you just can't. You can't watch it and possibly take this seriously. It's just like it, it, Tyson just lost his mind, and I, I. <laughs> Let's see if we can carry on through the rest of this. The worst bit is, is not only he's lost his mind, but he's premeditatedly lost his mind. Like, <laughs> like you, one of you point out, like, you're, you're watching this round, waiting for the trigger, waiting for the moment, and there just isn't one, and then he just rips his ear off. Like, he, at some point between the second and third rounds, maybe during the second round, has decided, I'm going to have a go at his ear here. Like, and that's it. And he's just set on it. And that's... His mind just goes, and he's only got eyes for Holyfield's ears. 
It's crazy. Um, back back to the ring and Mills Lane. I have to say, I'm doing him a disservice with like this this chaos surrounding the coverage of this moment. But he he was exceptionally dignified in the ring. He explains not deducting a point for the uh, perceived headbutt because he saw it as an accident, so you wouldn't deduct a point for it. That was the first question from the uh, announcer, uh, from from the interviewer. And to be honest, I think if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have opened up with, why didn't you deduct a point for the headbutt? Um, he defends his, yeah, defends his action, saying he saw it as an accident. Um, he, that uh, he deducted a point after the first bite, and when uh, Tyson did it a second time, that was grounds for the disqualification. Um, he, he, Conducted himself outstandingly and got every call right, maybe apart from the pressure of not being in the right frame of mind to disqualify Tyson rightfully after the first bite. Um, I mean, any anything else on this before we move into sort of the, the real post-fight stuff with the Holyfield interview? I mean, I feel like there's so much more that could be said, but there's also so very little. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I mean, well, you, you do say you feel like um, the ref got most of the big decisions right. I, I think he got the big one wrong. Um, you know, I, I don't blame him for it necessarily in, in the context and the circumstances. Uh, the fight should have ended after the first fight. But I mean, you know, that's that that that's not a that's not a oh you're pushing the line. That's not a, a low shot that you're like well it was low but you didn't mean it to be that low. There's no real. There's no real area of grey where biting someone's ear off. That there's no like, oh well, he bit his ear off, but he was attempting like a, you know, a shoulder tackle. Not that that's legally boxing either. But there's, you know, there's no real middle ground here. Um, just ridiculous. The whole thing. It hardly feels least the thing, and the, the ring's full of people. And then like they try to take Tyson away, I think, and then some fights break out on the way back. And I don't know. It's the whole thing's just mental. Like it makes no sense. And then you think, like in my mind, like I wasn't really going to pay attention to the post-fight stuff because I'm like, well, nothing's going to happen. They'll interview someone of note or the ref, and and you know that'll happen, and that'll be it. We get comments from Evander Holyfield, and I think you know, sorry, Chris, to cut you off. But then we get the stuff with with Tyson's camp, and it's like, oh fuck, they're on the offensive. Was not expecting that, and that's what you're going to get through the sex. So I won't say any more. Uh, Dan, as our resident boxing expert, I mean, we've touched on it in great detail, but just as the boxing expert, summarise to our listeners what the hell has gone on here. So, basically, um, you know, he's disqualified him for two bites of the ear instead of the usual four. Um, <laughs> and Tyson, for some reason, believes this is a massive injustice, has gone to murder Evander Holyfield apparently by brute force and and basically the entire in-ring security has to get into the ring to separate Evander Holyfield from the maniac um, Tyson's team face the riser will also be probably be better done the year by Tyson and Jester Raymond and are trying to you know make some sort of case for the fight being restarted or this being an absolute charity because how dare you disqualify a man for biting the guy's ear off and trying to take the other ear off as well you know um this you know if the first fight is everything that's amazing in boxing and what 
what's the stuff that you show to to get people into the sport. This is the fight that you want to people to, you know, everyone goes, oh, boxing's an absolute joke of a sport. It's, it's, it's you know, too macho men who have too much testosterone running for their body, who are brutal thugs, who love knocking people out. And Tyson versus Holyfield 2 is the fight that they point to because a man bit someone's ear off twice. And it's, it's, an absolute, it's an absolute disgrace, you know, when, you know, Tyson at this point is, is, is just, he's, he's gone, he's gone through the red mist and he's now into the actual lava. You know, he, all he can see is red. And, you know, when he's done like that, you just gotta get out of the way. Let him kind of try, try your best to calm him down as much as possible. And you might touch on it in your post, um, fight notes, Chris, but he's not done. Um, and just just because he's out of the ring now doesn't mean that you know, he's finished with uh, his his violent escapades of the night. No, by no means. Um, Bob, anything else to that before I get into the uh, post-fight quotes and interviews and whatnot? I, I, I've just got so much admiration for Tyson doubling down. Um, that's so good. <laughs> to, to, you know, I, I've always got more aver- I, I always think it, it's even more brilliant not to bite someone on each ear during the fight, but to for the fight to finish and think you're the guy in the right. That's superb. That the attitude that says no, everyone's still against me. That's brilliant. He just lost his goddamn mind. Like he just went. His head was gone. I've never seen anyone lose their head in a sporting contest. I don't think to this level. I I, I can't think of a comparison in footballing terms or anything. Uh, well, I mean, Luis Suarez has actually bitten bitten people twice. I suppose I actually feels three times, isn't it? I think. Yeah, um, he has, but it's just yes. it's just not the same when they're so spread out. Like I don't know. He, he, for me, Luis Suarez has never lost his head in a, in a violent way to this degree, despite having done the same thing on multiple occasions. But, like, he's had a chomp at someone's wrist. He hasn't torn a man's ear off, then gone back in for seconds. <laughs> like, I, I don't it's know. Like what, it's like what I talked about when you have that, that switch moment where you all the anger just rushes through your veins and you just want to inflict as much pain as you can to someone and you bite him. You know, but then Suarez could come back. You know, you, like, oh, no, what have I done here? And, he, you know, I don't say it's for remorse, but he was like, uh, okay, I need to calm down here, otherwise I'm going to do something wrong here. Tyson, that thought never even occurs to him. He just wants to hurt Holyfield as much as he can. Whether that is because he wants to get out of the fight immediately and, and be done with him, as you think, Bob, or whether it is just who has history of violence in his youth, just, you know, that side of his, his personality rearing its head over the sports person that has dominated boxing for, like the heavyweight boxing scene for, for Buster Douglas. Um, yeah, just, just a madman going, you know, just going off his leash. Uh, we cut backstage to a perplexed and stunned looking Evander Holyfield. Um, he's interviewed and he opens by uh, praising Jesus and says that as far as he knew, all, all he knew was that he was beating Tyson and then Tyson was spitting out a piece of his ear. Um, every time we get a closer look at Holyfield, the, the piece of his ear that missing looks worse. 
And as he's standing there, it's just a hideous shot of a serious chunk of his ear missing. Um, Holyfield saw that it claims that he saw Tyson deliberately spit out his mouthpiece, and then shortly after he bit him. Um, Holyfield looks really disappointed and downtrodden here to an extent, having just retained his title, obviously. Um, him and the interviewer both sort of make it clear it's not exactly how he wanted to retain his title, necessarily. Uh, I don't think you can blame him, really. Um, he is asked about the possibility of fighting Tyson for a third time. Oh, um, To which he says, look, we're just going to have to step back and, and have a think, really. Which I think, in the, in the heat of the moment, was a very composed answer, like rather than just being like, no, never fighting him again, or yeah, let's do it. Just a very composed, self-assured, from a, from a, uh, a great figurehead for the sport, in a, in a massive contrast to his opponent on this night. Uh, Tyson, we cut back to the uh, announcers, and Tyson's labelled as a... Can, can I add one thing, Chris? I, on the, I, I thought the Holy Spirit was remarkable, but I think the, the, the one bit that stands out, and, and it, it perhaps was the most ridiculous thing I saw in the entire clip we saw, the whole thing, was the very end of the interview where the interviewer goes, I think you're going to need to go out to hospital now because that's what they need to do after a human bite. And I went, <laughs> yep, this is, this, is, this is now officially surreal. This has gone, this is like, I didn't dream it. This wasn't weird. He just said, you've got to go to hospital because that's what they need to do after a human has bitten someone. That was... Uh, I, I thought of all the post-match interviews, of all the random shit said, that was the pinnacle. I just love how his team had to scrape on the ring, around the ring in this melee, find the discarded piece of ear that was on the ring, quickly chuck it in a little jar of ice so they could, the surgeons could reattach it when he got back to the hospital. Imagine trying to do that with, with uh, all that media attention. Say, so, oh, sorry, sir. I believe that's uh, Mr. Holyfield's ear there. I must go and pick this up quick. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe his level of composure. Like, as you say, the, the, one of the most surreal lines in all of sports. That's what they need to do after a human bite. And Holyfield's just like, yeah, I'm off to hospital now. See you later. All right. Like, so casual. He, I, I can't believe the composure this man has. Like, the adrenaline, you know, he's in a... WBA World Heavyweight Championship boxing contest against Iron Mike Tyson, who then has bitten his ear off, and he's been rushed out of the ring, and he just gives this interview, and he's calm, and then they're just like, you've got to go to hospital now, because you've been bitten by a human. Like, yeah, see you later. It's remarkable level of composure that one could only dream of aspiring to. Um... As I say, yeah, we cut back to the uh, announcers. Uh, they 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 sort of berate the interviewer for talking about a third fight because Tyson, in no way, deserves one. Mm. And my immediate fallout from this fight on this night was just that was bizarre and crazy because I don't really know how else to describe it. In the uh, slightly less immediate fallout, we have the Nevada State Athletic Commission. By law, they could not find Mike Tyson more than 10% of his purse. So they fined him $3 million, and he took home the remaining $27 million. Holyfield received $35 million, and Tyson also had his boxing license revoked, which would not be reinstated until October 1998. 
That's not that long. For what it's worth. It. Not no. Um, it's, I guess it shows that money talks and we're going to get onto a fight in more modern times where no matter what the morality of such a fight, money talks in, in the combat sport game. And uh, there must have been a lot of pressure from the finance side of things to get such a big draw as Mike Tyson off the bench, as it were, and get him back in the game. And they they were probably just, from the day it happened to the day they reinstated his licence, they were probably just waiting for it to blow over and look for the earliest available opportunity to get him back. Um, yeah, for what it's worth, it was the uh, highest grossing boxing match in history at the time in pretty much all categories that you could look in. There was an 18,187 a uh, strong crowd at the MGM Garden Arena, uh, and it produced a gate of $17.2 million. Domestic pay-per-view buyers more than $1.99 million, generating nearly $100 million in pay-per-view revenue just in the US alone. Um, so, yeah, pretty big business for what turned out to be one of the most notorious and farcical endings in, in the history of combat sports. Uh, got some... Quick quotes here from people involved in the action in the immediate aftermath of the fight. Holyfield, uh, he spit out his mouthpiece and bit me in the ear. It shows no courage to foul and get out of the fight as quick as possible. Fear causes people to do the easiest things and the quickest things. Don Turner, Holyfield's trainer, he, he's on the record as saying, it's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in all my years of boxing. Tommy Brooks, another of Holyfield's trainers, it's a typical bully move. Tyson had Holyfield all to himself in the ring, but when he had 15 people in between them, suddenly he wanted to fight again. An absolute coward. Mike Tyson, for its words, as uh, Bob and Dan have both alluded to, he doubled defended his actions in the immediate aftermath of the fight. He looked at me and even deducted points. What am I supposed to do? I get children to raise, and he kept butting me. Holyfield isn't tough. He got a little cut on his ear, and then he quit. He didn't want to fight, regardless. Look at me. Look at me. I'm going to go home now. And cut on his ear, and then he quit. <laughs> the final line. Look at me. Look at me. I'm going to go home now, and my kids will be scared of me. And everyone's lame but yourself, Mr. Tyson. <laughs> he got a little cut if you think Ridiculous, <laughs> Bob. While you're in the moment, I'll uh, throw in John Horn, Tyson's co-manager, one of the men who appeared before the Nevada State Athletic Commission trying to get the... Uh, ...that Mike Lurie's eye for three inches long. Evander's got this little nip on his ear. It means nothing. That's the bottom line. He just jumped because he's a little bitch. <laughs> oh, I've got so much admiration for this. Like, there's no fucks at all. Yeah. They could sound like his little pet kittens come along and like give him a little kiss on the lip. Oh, how a little, little scamp. Oh, you give him a little nip on the ear there, you little minx. <laughs> As is very apparent... The Tyson camp came out fighting in the immediate aftermath of, of this incident and were furious. But it didn't take long for them to change their tune. 
30th of June, just two days later, Mike Tyson uh, released a televised statement apologising, saying, just these, this is the entire statement. I snapped and I couldn't tell you why I acted as I did. That's, that's the statement. <laughs> so it's not quite as on the front foot. But it is certainly no, no apology. It reminds me of that scene in the American office where Dwight comes in and they're like, you need to read a statement of your regret. And Dwight pulls out a full sheet of paper <laughs> and just says, he just says, I state my regret. And then he, he falls on the piece of paper <laughs> and fucks off. <laughs> he got a little nick on his ear and then he quit. That's that's brilliant. That's the, we, we talk about heels in wrestling. Like, heels in wrestling don't come up with lines as good as that. Like, you know, not, only, not only that, Bob, but then followed it with, he jumped around like a little bitch. That's the follow-up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, th- there are oh. some of the uh, more prominent co- quotes in the immediate aftermath. If you two have regained some level of uh, composure after the ridiculousness of the Tyson Camp quotes, would you, if you care to comment on any of those quotes more generally? Oh, uh, <sighs> Bunch of reasons. <laughs> I mean, oh my! To, to go into attack mode after all of that. I mean, that's just how. I, like, I wasn't really planning on paying attention to the post-match stuff. Like, I wasn't. I wasn't particularly prepared for anyone of note to be interviewed, other than perhaps the referee. Um, the the Holyfield interview, in many ways, is just as ridiculous. Holyfield's just completely normal. You know, you you got to go to hospital now because you've been bitten by another human. Yeah, whatever. You know, oh, we'll sort it out. And then we cut the Tyson's cab, and it's just so aggressive. It's like, yeah, we well, headbutted him. Yeah, that's <laughs> a fair game after that, right? You know, that's that's normal. I don't know. It's, it's like we should be taking this seriously, but it really is difficult. Like this is a, a very serious historic moment in sport for for good or for bad, and yet it's just comical. It's just the 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 post bite attack. Verbally from Tyson's camp, he's just brilliant. Um, yeah, it's like yeah, we're, we're t- as I say, we're talking about one of the the most historically significant moments in sporting history here. Like we might be talking top ten, um, you know, notorious certainly. Um, and yeah, just really bizarre to see it all in some kind of context. It's very very strange. It's just a really they- odd moment. Like none of it makes sense. Sorry, Bob. Um, that is like. If you were watching a real Will Ferrell movie about boxing, and this is the aftermath of a fight in which Will Ferrell bit someone's ear off, like that's how yeah, absurd it is. It's like a, a, the guy a, comes a out cheesy comedy. Nothing's wrong. Yeah, the guy comes and, out. He just and the, nothing's wrong at all. And the guy who did the bite is just furious and feels hard done by because he headbutted him. Like it, it's it's like it's been written for a cheesy, absurd comedy that is meant to like pull on the strings of the ridiculous to to gain laughs. It's just it's just outstanding, really. It might be my favourite pro wrestling storyline of all time. <laughs> might be uh, might be the aftermath oh, of this, this fight. True, true, true. It's always better than fiction, right? I mean, you, you, they'd never be able to write anything this good of the WWF, would they? I mean, they, they, they'd never write the line about, oh, he got bit, he, he got a nick on his ear and then he quit. Like, no, no pro wrestler has ever said a line that good. <laughs> like, you know, that's brilliant. I don't know. We should be taking this seriously, but I just can't. 
sorry, sorry, go on, Dad. I'm sure you can offer something a bit more coherent than me. No, not really. I, 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 okay. I, it's, weird. it's like, I, before we started recording this, I was, I was ready to, you know, talk about how this is one of the most despicable acts in boxing history. This is like the moment that forever, you know, um, soured everyone's opinion on Mike Tyson even though it was lower than it was already. Just seriously, after hearing all of these quotes that, that Chris, you've been bringing out, it's literally like you can't not laugh at it. They laugh at the absurdity of, and the craziness and the, just the sheer, like, you can't believe this is actually happening in front of your eyes moments, uh, going in front of you. Like, Tyson's just, Tyson's just the attitude of, oh yeah, I'm in the wrong, yeah, I, I was, I, this is self-defense. Holyfield was clearly trying to take my eye out with his headbutt. This is just pure and natural reaction. Of course I was going to bite his ear off. You know, it's, it's absolutely absurd. I, I want to be serious about it because it is a despicable fact and it is a a moment that we should all look upon and go, this is what sport isn't about and you should show your kids this and go, this is not how you behave. And, you know, boxing is all about, you know, discipline and and giving, you know, kids like Mike Tyson who had a rough childhood and, and streets, you know, a way of taking the anger out and frustration and channeling it in a positive way and not biting someone's ear off. You know, that's this is almost the antithesis of what combat sports are meant to be about. There's there's some there are some guys like Mike Tyson out there who just like hurting people, but ultimately boxing and MMA and, and taekwondo and all these sorts of sports are there for to channel your aggression in a positive way and make you a better person. And Mike Tyson has kind of spat in the face of, of all those kind of thoughts by doing this absolutely heinous act. Is, is that serious enough for you, Chris and Bob? Have I, have I, have I brought it back round again? Well, well done, you said this. I think, yeah, very much so. For, for what it's worth, Tyson would not box again until the 16th of January, 1999. Um, but that's not that long! Sorry, I'll go back to ridiculous again. That is not that long! No. Like, that's not, like, that's, that's a ridiculous, like, if it, he might not have fought for six months if he hadn't have been suspended. Like, he's effectively been suspended for a year for, for, for biting someone's ear. Suarez almost got that long. Oh. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Sorry, go on, Chris. I, if I carry on, it's late. I'm blaming that. <laughs> Is no, that... I, I mean, sorry, go on, Dan. I was going to say, for, for boxing in general, and this is true for, for any sort of ban that boxers introduce, whether it be for uh, performance and drugs, for for unsportsmanlike conduct, for match fixing, for ripping someone's ear off with their teeth, years and months spent long bans don't really work because of the training camps and the and the specialty which they fight in. It really should be more. You can't fight for, you know, it should be kind of at least you know tripled or quadrupled. Um, in comparison to what, you know, say for example an athlete gets done for drugs, they get two year ban. Like for boxing it really should be more like four or six years because of the amount of fights that they would have in a year's time. Like Tyson doesn't need to fight every you know, fight four times a year just needs, you know, he needs to fight once or twice. So in reality, he's only, he's only lost you know, 12 rounds you know, at maximum of his career, which is nothing compared to the offence that he did. I mean, I'm not even sure if there was a, an official suspension, per se, as opposed to 
Look, I, I haven't actually seen anywhere in research for this, like, he was given a 12-month suspension. He was just revoked his boxing licence, effectively banning him from boxing within the United States. And then the following October, not sorry, October 98, there was a, 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 a meeting where they considered reinstating it and they voted four to one, four to one that they should. So I'm not even sure he was officially suspended as opposed to a, a permanent ban until it's not permanent, if if that makes sense. Just a bit of a break, wasn't it, really? Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't really have anything much else from the uh, Holyfield-Tyson stuff. I mean, there's not too much in the immediate fallout uh more than we've covered. Tyson was fined 10% of his purse and and had his licence revoked for an indeterminate amount of time. And uh, it didn't really... Like, he took home $27 million still for, for that performance and for that showing. Shall we talk about Mayweather and uh, Connor? Yes. So... Uh, before we wrap up the show, we have a little bit of modern-day boxing coverage to run through. On the 26th of August 2017, what is being billed as the money fight, potentially the most lucrative fight in the history of all combat sports, is currently scheduled as the 49-0 Floyd Mayweather Jr., possibly the greatest defensive boxer in history, takes on the Owen. Oh, professional debutant, Conor McGregor. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's not that ridiculous. It doesn't sound weird when you say it like that. He's just facing yeah. a fucking rookie, right? The fight takes place at 154 pounds with a 40-year-old Mayweather and the professional boxing debutant both in line to over, earn over $100 million. We'll come to Dan first as our resident boxing expert. First question that this fight is happening, and what do you envisage the outcome of the contest to be? Um, it is a circus attraction. In you know, realistically, if if it's like what would happen if a lion fought a bear, you know, in that sort of thing. Well, everyone in their respective camps will make a really strong argument that their guy would win, but if you actually break it down and watch it analytically, of course the bear would win. He's stronger. He's got a you know. He weighs so much more. He can just hit him with a claw. Isn't Connor a tiger based on his tattoo? Uh, That's true. Yeah. Um, (laughs) This this fight is going to be um, a joke. No, no, a joke's harsh. Um, A farce? I give us yeah. Because I think everyone knows Mayweather's going to win. It's just how competitive Conor McGregor makes it, or when Mayweather chooses to make it, depending on how seriously he takes it. You know what I mean? Um, because he, I'm sure that if McGregor wants, um, Mayweather wanted to, he could knock McGregor out very quickly. But I honestly think that Mayweather is so money focused and so interested in making this a spectacle that he generally could toy with McGregor for the entire rounds and just win on points just making him look like an absolute tool because you know McGregor is you know he's he's a handy boxer in an MRA sense but if you took him out and said okay Connor do you see yourself winning a British welterweight title against you know a, a very good amateur British fighter who 
maybe went to the Olympics, maybe is an amateur style in his in his Do you think you could beat that guy in your first fight? And most people would say no, I don't think he could. So how on earth is he gonna beat a guy that guys like Manny Pacquiao, Miguel Cotto, Shane Mosley, Canelo Alvarez could barely help put a glove on for twelve rounds? And when you think of it like that, it just you just you can tell how much of a fastest fast fight is in a competitive sense, but maybe not from an enjoyment sense. Well, if if Bob was to decide to start up a weekly boxing podcast between now and the twenty sixth of August, and you had that, but all right, Bob. <laughs> and you had me talking about this fight every week between now and the twenty sixth of August. I would, in fact, on one episode, probably at least, tell you that I think Conor McGregor's going to win. And I know that he won't. And it's just so easy to get swept up in the hype. And the betting markets show it. McGregor's never boxed professionally, and he's taken on one of the greatest boxers of all time, probably definitively the greatest defensive boxer of all time. And he's got shorter odds to win than someone like Marcos Maidana did in either of his fights against Floyd in 2014. Marcos Maidana's a world-class boxer. This is absolutely mental. He's never fought professionally before. The fact that it's happening is, is, like you say, it's a farce, but the draw for the fight is the spectacle rather than the sporting contest. Uh, Bob, I'll come to you. Uh, what do you think about the fact that, one, this is happening, and what do you think will happen? I mean... We've spoken a lot about this show, about stuff that, that should matter, that it's hard to take seriously already. Um, and this isn't this isn't a sporting contest. Like, it doesn't matter who wins or loses. I'm not even... I wouldn't even want to bet my house on Mayweather winning. Like, I, you know, I, because it doesn't matter. Like, both guys win the minute the first bell rings, right? Because once the first... I know, you know, once the first bell rings, they both get paid. After that, it's just all noise, right? I mean, it, you know, like, I, 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 that's the thing. Like, it's, I think, what you said, it, it's kind of, I feel like Mayweather will be in such control that he will stage manage the fight. And once you kind of get under that impression, it's, it's not a fight anymore. It's a wrestling match. It's a wrestling match that people think is real, even though it probably isn't. Um... I, I, I'm probably not going to watch. I'm probably not going to stay up for it. I'm certainly not going to buy it. Um, and we'll see what happens. But yeah, it, it, to me, this isn't a boxing match. To me, this is a stage show. It's, 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 it's the WrestleMania Vince McMahon would love to put on. Um, and they're calling it boxing because, you know, ostensibly it is. But it doesn't matter. The, 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 the result doesn't matter in part because Mayweather is definitely going to win. Um, but the result doesn't matter because there's nothing on this fight. It doesn't matter. It doesn't... Like, if McGregor loses, you know, he'll say, oh, yeah, I want to try it. I got to stand, I got to stand toe-to-toe with, with the best boxer of all time, you know, and I went seven rounds with him because Mayweather didn't bother to throw a punch in seven rounds. And then it's like... And Mayweather gets to kind of slunk off into the distance and he, he's got $120 million in, the, in his bank account. And fair play to him, right? Like you know the the the, the mugs aren't the two guys involved. The mugs to a point are the you know ten million people who are going to buy it or whatever it is. Um, it to me it's just a farce. Um, it's not sport. It's not it's not even really entertaining. 
it's just like a glorified preseason game, and, and I don't pay attention to preseason games. Um, yeah, I, I don't wish to sound so angry and so negative about it, but it's like there's, you know, this is kind of like when CM Punk stepped into USC, but at least Punk had, Punk sort of had the right intentions. These two are just here to fleece people's money. And like essentially, they're just here to take advantage of people not stupid enough to realise what's going on, and that's why I'm kind of quite angry about it because this isn't sport, this isn't boxing. Much like what we reviewed earlier, it isn't boxing. It's just it's it's you know it's show business, and it's it's a joke, really. I I don't I I agree with you on most points, but for me, I like everyone knows. Mayweather's going to win, but I I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that Connor isn't going to go out there and try his hundred percent damn hardest to try and knock him out. Like he hasn't got the capabilities to do so against someone like Floyd Mayweather in a boxing environment because that is beyond. Oh, no, I'm, not it, I'm not saying it's a fixed fight. I'm not saying it's it, it's it's a no, no, fight. I, I know but, you're not. I just, I just Mayweather, Mayweather is not there to lose, and Mayweather is not there to embarrass himself. And equally, I don't. Yeah, you know, I get the feeling if you said that Floyd Mayweather will double your money on this fight if you knock McGregor out in fifteen seconds, he'd do it. But he won't because he knows that's not what what's not what is best for him. And at that point, it ceases to become sport because at that point, it, it, it's entertainment, right? I, I think to a degree. This fight is a big deal in that the credibility and integrity of the sport of boxing is is somewhat on the line. The, the is last it, time Floyd is Mayweather, is it going to matter what happens here? Like, is, is boxing going to be? I think it does. I think it does. When you've got a forty nine and O, one of the greatest of all time, taking on an O and O, never done it professionally. I think it does matter. I, the last time Floyd, I, I say this in air quotes, but legitimately knocked someone out, was Ricky Hatton in 2007. Uh, like, I'm not counting the Victor Ortiz knockout, like, because I, I just... Well, when when was the not... last time Floyd Mayweather faced someone that had never boxed before? No, but this is what I mean. He better knock Connor out and he better do it early. Like, like... Yeah, but he won't. If he won't. I mean, I, I, he, yeah, I'm willing to put a wrong on that, but I, I, I I'd, be, I'd, be this goes, I, I'd be shocked if this goes less than three rounds. I think this um, is bad for the UFC. I think this is bad for boxing. This is bad for that. fans. I think it's bad for everyone, apart from the people who get rich off of it. I think it's bad but for the integrity why, of... I, sorry, Chris, no, Chris, what was it? that's why I think this isn't going to be a short fight. Because I think enough people are in on it. I'm not saying it's fixed, let's be clear, but you can. I, Mayweather is skilled enough to be able to stage manage a fight like this. And UFC do not want their top dog going into a boxing ring, whether it's whether it's, whether it's Mayweather or not, and getting knocked the fuck out inside of 30 seconds. Um, and I'd be stunned if that happens. I think they're, I think they're I both think... smart enough to know that this this needs to go a few rounds, and then Mayweather eventually will go out. Fuck it, now's the time to end it, and he'll end it. And that's why I'm not interested because it's not a it's not like a you know it's not a dream cross sport matchup. You know, it's not the it's not a boxer and a, an MMA fighter both at the top of their game, both battling it out because they want to see who's best. It's two guys that realise that they can make a fuckload of money. And then it's well, how can we maximise that opportunity? That's all it is. Well, look at the look at the, the bill's been ridiculous 
It's not been, you know, even, even by McGregor standards, it's been stupid. Um, and McGregor's going to lose the fight, and at the end of it, he'll come out and be all respectful. Because, you know, like, you know, McGregor's a big name, but he fucking, you know, he ain't fit to lace Floyd, Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather's boots in terms of popularity and stardom. Ma- Ma- McGregor wins. Oh, I'm not sure about right, that. Well, oh, come McGregor's on. Yeah, McGregor's last last few fights have done triple what Floyd's yeah. fights outside the Pacquiao fight did towards the end, Tri- around triple in terms of pay per view buys. Okay, fair yeah. enough. And in and in terms of you know, McGregor's drawing power is if you if you like took like in boxing terms, Mayweather is now no longer I would say the biggest draw in boxing because that's now been taken over by Canelo Alvarez. So, in terms of Conor McGregor's, you know, star power in the MMA world compared to McGregor, Mayweather's star in the boxing fraternity, I would say McGregor's probably the bigger draw here. For because you could, you could, I, I I think worldwide Mayweather's yeah worldwide yeah I would say you're probably right in there with, in terms of Mayweather, but in terms of the guys that are actually going to pay for this fight, the the novelty factor of Conor McGregor, Mister MMA taking on Mayweather is the stuff that's going to draw here. It's not the fact that Mayweather is, is fighting or McGregor is fighting. It's, you know, it's the, it's novelty factor. And that's why I'm kind of on your side, but I'm not going to, I'm definitely not going to pay for it. I mean, it's, I like competitiveness. It's what I look for in sport and I like intrigue and no amount of intrigue in this is just going to, is going to watch a, an either a Mayweather demolition job or a glorified sparring session. You know, for, for however many rounds that Mayweather wants this fight to take, if he wants to take it over in three rounds, I'm sure he could do. And he might not knock McGregor out, but he'll probably do the whole unanswered punches stop, stoppage where McGregor hasn't, you know, thrown anything back in anger for for a good minute, and the and the referee saves him from, from a punishment rather than him getting knocked spark out, which is what kind of you were saying there, Chris. You know, last time Mayweather knocked someone out cold. Um, and yeah, I, ju- I just think it's. I'm all I'm all for going to the circus occasionally, but not if I have to watch and you know pay fifty dollars if you're American and and, 50, and twenty quid if you're British. I think most Americans wish it was fifty dollars. I think it's a hundred, isn't it? I think. Oh Jesus it? Christ! There you go. The, H- the HD is a hundred, and I think the, the standard is is ninety. Yeah. Oh God! Uh, sake. So on, on the topic of. On the topic of pay-per-view buyers, one last little question on this. Mayweather Pacquiao did around 4.6 million in the US. Um, you can make a lot of money if you're a, if you're a betting man right now because the makers have the over/under on on pay-per-view buyers like four, at 4.999999 million. So over/under five really? million buys. Yes, and it's heavily favoured that it will be over uh, five million. So you can make a lot of money betting that it will be under five million. So my my final question is, really, does it break that Mayweather Pacquiao record, or or, or does it not? Uh, I'll come to you first, Bob. Uh, uh, I, I think there's a I think there's almost two kind of questions here that are kind of diverging slightly. You know, is the interest high? Yes, it is. Will it do five million pay per view buyers in in North America? My hunch would be no. At that price point, uh, uh, you know, not everyone's going to be interested in this. And at that kind of price point, I'd be very surprised if it does five million. 
very surprised. I, I suspect a lot of people will be watching, but the price point being that high, you'll get a lot of people watching community, a lot of people watching in bars. Um, no, I'd be very surprised if it does that number. I... Well, okay, I'm assuming that the, the, the 1.5 million people that bought McGregor Diaz will pay for it because it's McGregor. They like the fact that he's taking on the boxing guy. I think boxing fraternity will probably have a million buys because it's because it's Mayweather. And they want to see him get you know school Mister MMA. Um, and then it's just a question of whether there's going to be an extra two million from somewhere. Well, I mean, there'll I, be a lot. There'll so, be a lot of interest from outside of those groups as well. That's what um, I'm saying. That's where that's where you got to try and get the two million from. Because I reckon there'll be. I reckon. I, I just had a. Just had a quick look at Mayweather Berto, which was his last fight. Seven hundred thousand. Around... A quick Google says somewhere between four hundred and five hundred and fifty thousand yeah. buys. And that wasn't um, competitive. So at all. that was everyone just said because there was it was weird because like Mayweather fought Pacquiao and everyone was like, oh Mayweather's got one fight left. Who's it going to be against? Is it going to be you know against the young hungry? Is it going to be against Golovkin? Is he going to rematch Alvarez? And maybe everyone's just like, nope, I'm going to fight Andre Berto. And everyone's like, yeah, maybe all right. Who are you going to fight, really? It's like, no, I'm fighting Berto. And I don't think anyone really believed he was fighting Berto until the week before the fight day, and the presses were coming through. It's like, oh shit, he's actually going to fight Andre fucking Berto. This this no hope. So if that, again, if that's the attitude that some boxing fans are going to take, where it's going to be like, this isn't competitive, I don't want to watch this, then it could it could drop to the to, you know, below the estimations. Um, I, I don't think it will, personally, because of, again, the prevalence of streaming. I think, because this is such a circus fight, everyone will be like, I'd be really interested to see this, I'll just stream it. You know, this, this would be quite fun to watch for half an hour, rather than, I'm going to spend 100 quid to see a demolition job. You know? That's my personal yeah. thing. I, I could see that being wrong, though, because I, you know, because these two are the biggest stars, um, for casual fans in combat sports so it could definitely do some damage but I don't think it will be uh, maybe with a Pacquiao no I'd be I'd make that free for free I don't like McGregor being what comfortably at at this stage the biggest draw in in MMA 1.5 to 1.6 million is what he will do on pay-per-view and you attract the hardcore MMA audience to for this uh, like, I mean, you can say uh, you think 1.6 million, like, those people who bought that fight would also buy this one. If I had to buy UFC pay-per-views in the UK, which we don't, I would buy McGregor Diaz 2 back last August. I would have bought that, but I'm not going to be buying this. So even then, I think there's a trickle effect, and you lose buys out of that audience as well. Um... They're both if I was fucking a, a at the end of it, right? Does it really matter? <laughs> like, you know, whether McGregor and Mayweather end up with $95 million or 110 I don't think they're really going to mind. I, yeah, it's... You know, if this, was, if this was WrestleMania, there wouldn't be a tenth of the interest. And yet, I don't think it's necessarily any different. It's a spectacle, you know. All right, this, this is technically not a fixed fight. I'm not saying it is. Um, but I think I, you know, th- this is this is what in sport we call a mismatch, and in a 
in, in a world where you book fights, you don't book mismatches because people don't want to see them. And yet, this is kind of like a freak show fight almost. Um, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the thing of, of letting CM Punk into the UFC for his first professional fight. Why are you doing it? You're not doing it because he's good enough. You're doing it because he can draw you money. And that was embarrassing. Um, and I honestly suspect that if, if May, Mayweather's MO was to win the fight as quickly and as decisively as possible, I honestly suspect he would embarrass Conor McGregor very, very quickly. But I don't think he will because that's not part of the show. And if it's not part, if it's not part of the show and it's a show, then it's not sport anymore. And that's kind of why I'm a bit flat on it all. No, I think I think we've summed up our opinions quite succinctly there on what is much more a spectacle than a fight, I would say. Um, and I think we've all made it clear that none of us will be buying it. And uh, I mean, I think like we've all got to some degree a hardcore level of interest in combat sports, whether that be more MMA or, or, or boxing orientated, depending on on the individual. But when you've got three people like us who who won't be buying it, and we've got to pay. 25 quid rather than 100 bucks uh, and if I was in America I, I don't, and it was, it was on a normal like yeah, 11 o'clock midnight eastern or if I was further west coast and it was like you know 9, 10 o'clock I'd probably find a way of watching i.e. go to a bar or have a group of friends around and make an evening of it um, but fuck paying 100 quid to watch 100 dollars to watch this on my own like you know you make a night of it because it's the biggest thing going on but it's not a it's not a big spectacle or it's expensive. No, it's, it's not important. No, it's ba- it's basically. Do you want to go to, you know, a, a circus act, or do you want to go to a, you know, a big spectacle thing, which you know is just going to be, um, a bit of a pop. It's like going to watch Transformers. You know, you're going to watch something that's absolutely <laughs> rubbish. You know, you're going to watch something that's absolutely no good for wider cinema, or in this case, combat sport. But it probably would be entertaining for, for no matter how long it lasts. So that's, you know, I think, you know, we're combat sports snobs at the end of the day. We don't like it because it's not proper competitive action, but there'll be a damn sure Transformers breaks box office records every time it comes out. I'm sure this will do much, 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 much more business than something like, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, Kell Brook versus L. Spence, for example, which is an amazing fight, but you know, not a big casual fan interest, which was this one. Well, in sep- September, we've got Golovkin-Alvarez, and, I mean, that's oh. not going to do a fraction of the business, is it, like, that this will? And that, that says everything you need no. to know, really, about what's the draw, the spectacle, or the, or the contest. For people yeah. like us, it might be the contest, but for the wider audience, it's the spectacle. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the way it's going. I'm definitely paying for Golovkin-Alvarez, though, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I think on that note that will just about do it uh, for this month's edition of the Boxing 20 Years Ago podcast uh, firstly thank you to Dan Welling our resident boxing expert for being on the show and giving some guidance to me and Bob no problem at all Chris I've, I've loved uh, talking boxing with you guys I had a lot more fun than I thought it would be uh, so thank you very much for your time uh, Dan you can be found on Twitter uh, I can at Daniel886, but um, I haven't tweeted in a few months, so um, I'm not very good at these plugs, am I, really? So 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, thanks for uh, having <laughs> us both on the show, I guess. Toss up the kicking product. No. A couple of pieces. Thank you for the together, um, and also thank you the listeners for just picking through this. We did have we have some road some technical issues tonight. Thankfully, they didn't seem to last beyond the first hour or so, with the odd exception. Um, but yeah, the second boxing show we've done like really really fun to review two massively important um, things, and I look forward. And with Gregor Ronaldo, that was a cause of shock from Chris. There, I'm not sure. Maybe he's a. I've convinced the others. Do you? Yes, maybe he's not. Hello. Yes, Chris. Chris, wrap up the show. Uh, after after introducing Dan, my, my uh, connection has gone haywire. So uh, I apologise for my last minute disappearance. I don't know if you've wrapped up. I don't know what I've missed. Oh, no, we're still going, but yeah, I will, I, 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 let me wrap the show up, then go on. Uh, big Chris, I, I will say, while you were, while you were uh, off, uh, Chris, a very big thank you for your contribution to the show. I, I don't think uh, uh, I don't think the show would have sounded half as good without your level of prep, given me the, the little amount I did. Uh, so big thank you to you, Chris, and, and, and plug people on, your, on, on Twitter and everything else. Yeah, for, yeah, cheers, Bob. It's, it's been a pleasure to prep for. It's always fun to do the uh, MMA and boxing shows. I look forward to doing uh, more of both across the next years. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ChrisWhite14 if you would like to do so. And I throw back over to you, Bob. Okay, I'll wrap up the show. Yeah, full volumes for you this month. Um, the other three have been out a long time already. Volume number one takes to the WWF. Looking at Key in the Ring. Volume number two takes to the WCW looking at the Great American Bash. And volume number three takes to the ECW looking at Wrestlepalooza. It is July 20th. We are a bit late for this one. It's going to be a weird kind of four or five weeks as we stitch through July and August. But yeah, it's just a thank you. A reminder, you can find me on Twitter at Bobby Bamba and all the info you need at Wrestling20YRS.com. Uh, if you'd like to say thank you for shows like this are wrestling shows or MRO shows you can do so on patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 RS for five bucks a month we'll give you early access etc etc it is quite late I am quite desperate to get to bed so that'll do that I've been Bob Bamber this has been the boxing uh, 20 years ago podcast you can tell I don't wrap this up very much uh,